Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. It's very nice to see you all. Did everyone pick up an apple on your way in? Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Um, If you're watching on live stream or on Facebook, everybody has an apple, so go to your kitchen and get one. I hope you have one there. We are a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. I'm very glad you all are here. We come from a heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so one of the ways that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by turning to the people around us and welcoming them here this morning. Please say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. We light the fire of truth and ask to be clear, wise, and humble enough to admit when we don't know. We kindle the warmth of community and ask for open-heartedness and patience. We are grateful to the spirit of life and ask to learn the secret to loving and being loved. This congregation has a mission statement. We don't have a central command that writes our mission statement for us. Each congregation writes its own. And this is the one that we wrote, and we wrote it on the wall, and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. And after we say the mission, we have a little uh, sip of uh, something to make us think about that will uh, advance beloved community if the people who are uh, white identified will think about these things. And what I want you to think about today is that it's just become illegal. They had to pass a law in California that there could be no discrimination based on someone's natural hairstyle. It had to be a law. And um, mostly the people that got sent home from work or sent home from school were black and brown people. And so uh, this disproportionately affected them and um, This might sound a little cheeky, but I think Dolly Parton would have triggered that policy as well for distracting too big hair. But it's now against the law in California to discriminate, which um, is wonderful. And if you want to do more research, just Google California law against discrimination of natural hairstyles or however you Google. This is the season in our church year when we try to figure out what our budget can be for the next year, and we ask each other to make a pledge of support to this church and to its mission. One of the things that we do during this time in our church year when we're asking each other for money is we ask people to come tell about why they like to support the church and its mission. And today's featured speaker is Leo Collis. Well, my name is Leo, Leo Carlos, and I've been a member of First U since 2003. And it took me a while to fully acclimate to Unitarian Universalism since it was a blind spot in my general understanding of theology and world religions. Because, you know, UU doesn't get up in your business, it doesn't make threats, it doesn't make promises. It's kind of a soft-spoken faith, and I appreciate that. The first thing I learned 
was that Unitarian Universalism is a faith of deeds, not creeds. It's also a faith that was born hundreds of years ago by people who had an understanding of life, spirituality, and the world very similar to uh, the way I see things today. The afterlife is, if there is one, will certainly take care of itself. All we can do is to live our best and most ethical lives now. I value being part of a faith so historically significant that its influence at the formation of this country helped to inspire some of the most distinctive tenets of the United States democracy, religious freedom and the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. A number of Unitarians were among our nation's founders, and I'm reminded that they were radically more liberal in their day than I am in mine. I value that you have always leaned into the cutting edge of social change and social justice, and I like being part of a faith community that has historically defied commonly held beliefs like enslavement of other human beings, the subjugation of women, and vilification of LGBTQ people. I'm humbled to follow in the footsteps of those who long ago saw that challenging mankind's inequities is indeed an expression of faith. This church is certainly not for everyone. If I needed to be told what would happen in an afterlife or how to get there, this wouldn't be the place for me. Reverend Meg is certainly not going to tell me what I should believe about the nature of God, and Reverend Chris won't quote Bible passages at, at me or anybody. Here, free thought reigns. I value being among people who know there are no absolute answers to life's most pressing questions. People who can contextualize Christianity and other main theme theologies into the framework of the world and all of its rich spiritual histories. This is a faith that asks me to cut through the hard shell of religion to find my own rendering of the common human spirituality that lies beneath it. Since joining First UU, I connected with what I believe to be our common human spirituality. That spirituality is manifest in the simple knowledge of the difference between good and bad, between fairness and injustice, between truth and what is false. I value the fact that I am not required to be bound by allegiance to any, theolo to any theology or political philosophy that can be contorted to support racism, misogyny, homophobia, nor the, the in inhumane treatment of those who come to our borders asking for help. I've come to understand that blind adherence to untenable beliefs is what causes spiritual weakness. I value that Unitarian Universalists seem to have always been on the correct side of history. And that's really profound to me. Uh, one thing that I learned recently is that this church in 1971 hosted uh, the first Gay Liberation Front convention in Texas in 1971 in House and Hall, before this building was built. By supporting First UU, I'm a part of an, an ineffable, profound, and optimistic faith. And I embrace, I embrace the connection with our shared UU legacy that helped to shape and strengthen the moral backbone of this country. So please join me in supporting the work done by First UU that fortifies that American backbone and strengthens the truest of our shared American values. 
This is a reading from Michael Pollan's book, The Botany of Desire. Michael Pollan is a white American author, journalist, activist, and professor of practice of nonfiction at Harvard University. We're prone to overestimate our own agency in nature. Many of these activities humans think they undertake for their own good purposes, inventing agriculture, outlawing certain plants, writing books in praise of others, are mere contingencies as far as nature is concerned. Our grammar might teach us to divide the world into active subjects and passive objects, but in a co-evolutionary relationship, every subject is also an object, every object a subject. That's why it makes just as much sense to think of agriculture as something the grasses did to people as a way to conquer the trees. Let us enter together into an attitude of prayer and meditation where we speak or listen to God as we understand God or listen to our inner wisdom or just follow our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. In this still place, we seek clarity and wisdom. If you would like to, you may use the Buddhist metta meditation as a way to uh, meditate. Or you don't have to. And in this congregation, noises of life and the noises from small children count as part of the silence. Let us enter the silence together.
Take this apple in your hand, if you will. It is an organic, gluten-free, vegan, washed apple. Feel the weight of it. See if you can smell it. Study its colors. How long do you think you would have to study it in order to be able to pick it out of a pile of other apples and go, yeah, that's my apple? Apples are not native to this continent. We think of them as uh, American, as American as apple pie, but they're not native. Where they come from is Kazakhstan. They grow wild on the mountain ranges of Tian Shan, along the border with China and Kazakhstan. They grow just above the poplars and just below the spruces, but from what I read, they grow wild all over the place in that area, pushing up through cracks in the sidewalk, apple trees everywhere. And there's a profligate variety of apples just cheek by jowl with each other, tiny little ones, dark and small as olives, great big yellow ones, green ones, red ones, everything in between. And most of them taste terrible. Uh, In early American life, they were called spitters because you take a bite and... The Silk Road, a trading route, ran through that area. And so what, what we imagine is that people uh, walked through that area or rode their horses and had their sheep and their uh, goats and camels with them and that everybody sort of camped around there and tried different apples. And maybe somebody said, hey, over here, there's a, this one's not too bad. And so the not-too-bad ones that had a little tiny gift of sweetness were the ones that filled people's pockets and got taken along the route. And then the seeds were dropped from sticky fingers or in dung piles, and some of them grew. And maybe that's how apples started to travel. If you cut an apple... Along its equator, you'll find that there is a star inside, a five-pointed star, a pentacle um, of, with little seeds in each of the um, compartments. They look like polished mahogany. And if you plant the seeds, you'll get a tree that bears apples like the one in your hand, right? No. The seeds of an apple do not come true. The seeds in this apple that you hold in your hand have an enormous variety of DNA. Each seed has a different DNA. So you could plant all the seeds in this apple you have in your hand, and you'd get a little sour uh, green apple tree. You'd get a big mealy yellow apple tree. You might get a delicious um, tree of, with apples of some color or other. 
but everything, every one of them would be different. One of the reasons for that, or one of the good things about that, is that you could take the seeds from this apple to any climate in the world where apples grow. And you could plant them, plant the seeds, and odds are okay that among the seeds in this apple, there would be one that would have the proper DNA to actually survive in that climate. And if it didn't survive, then maybe there would be seeds from some fruit it managed to make before the frost killed it or the sun scorched it or the flood washed it away, that those seeds would also have DNA that might make it in that climate. I just think that's very intelligent. And so... I want you to ask yourself this question. This is kind of a, this is a Zen koan of a question. You can count the number of seeds in an apple, but can you count the number of apples in a seed? So if the seeds don't come true, how do you get apple trees then? How do you, how do you control the apple trees. Well, several thousand years ago in China, they invented grafting where you cut a cutting from a tree that has the kind of apples you want or pears or whatever, and you notch it into a rootstock of a healthy tree. And then on the new wood that comes out of what you notched into the rootstock come the apples that were on the tree that you made a cutting from. So grafting is the way that we make apples and control their output so that we can get beautiful apples like this if that's what we want. And it, it was said that <clears throat> the knowledge of grafting came uh, along the silk route to the Greeks and the Romans, the whole Mediterranean um, peoples, and that the Greeks and the Romans cultivated maybe 23 varieties of apples through grafting, and they spread throughout Europe, of course. And then when the um, colonists came across to the New World, the colonists slash invaders came to the New World, they had, just a different point of view, they had their apple trees, their grafted apple trees with them. And the grafted apple trees that they brought with them mostly couldn't survive in the climate of the New World. It's a pretty harsh climate. You've got New England winters. You've got uh, mid-Atlantic swampiness. You've got southern swampy plus winter plus hot. You've got, you know, Texas. And so they had to start over again. They had to start with seeds. And when you plant an apple seed, what do you get? Uh you don't know. They call them pippins. They just got, you know, you get sour little pippins. I know that's a kind of apple now, but uh, I think it's named after the kind of sour apples that you get when you just plant a seed. And every uh, orchard grower had to search every tree in their orchard to see if they could find one that was sweet. And if they did find a sweet one, um, 
because there wasn't that much that was sweet. They didn't have sugar, and a lot of people um, learned about maple syrup from the native folks. Uh, but you can't get maple syrup in most parts of the country, so sweetness was highly prized. And you could get rich if there was a tree in your orchard that had sweet apples on it that you could graft and then sell. So everybody was always on the lookout for the next um, apple to hit it rich with. But what do you do with all the, um, all the other ones, all the sour ones? Cider. They made cider. And uh, it is said that along the frontier, um, almost everybody from child to elderly person drank cider all day long. It was safer than water. And so what one historian said was, just re-picture all of the exploits of the frontier that you've read about and picture them all being done in this sort of mild buzz of cider uh, intoxication. Apples were called the social fruit because they made alcohol. Um, the marketing of the apple as healthy, which apparently it actually really is, started during Prohibition when Carrie Nation and her cohort took their axes, you know, and they were chopping up bars. They also were chopping down thousands of apple trees because they didn't, I know, because they didn't feel like uh, you should have cider. So um, the apple has a kind of a taboo reputation. And some marketing genius said, let's just say an apple a day keeps the doctor away. And let people just eat apples and feel like they're just the most healthy thing ever. And we'll just forget about their alcoholic past. So, did human beings domesticate this fruit? Or did the apples figure out somehow that the way to spread their DNA far and wide was to be so compelling, so beautiful, so tasty, that people would pick them up and take them home and eat them and spread their seeds and make more of them? Michael Pollan wrote a book subtitled A Plant's Eye View of the World. The book is called The Botany of Desire. You heard a reading from it earlier. And he says that one of the blind spots that we have as humans is to think of ourselves as central, as, as the only beings with agency in this whole evolution of agriculture, and that it is possible to look at it a different way. He says... Um, we think that we domesticated animals and plants, but you could look at it in a different way. It makes as much sense to think of it as something certain plants and animals have done to us, a co-evolutionary strategy for advancing their own interests. So one way of describing the introduction of agriculture 10,000 years ago, he says, is that some plants refined their basic strategy of put the animals to work by sticking to their coats 
to take advantage of one particular animal that had complex interchanges, that made stuff and sold it and traveled. That'd be us. And the plants hit on a remarkably clever strategy, getting us to move and think for them. Now came edible grasses, such as wheat and corn, that incited humans to cut down vast forests and make more room for them. Flowers whose beauty would transfix other cultures and be so compelling and tasty and useful that they would inspire human beings to seed, transport, and extol. It just makes as much sense to think of agriculture as something the grasses did to people as a way to conquer the trees. So you know that flowers beguile us with their beauty, and so we pay a lot of attention to flowers. We plant them lots of different places. We, we, um, I don't have all gardening words because it's been a long time since I've watched Monty Don in the gardens of England. But um, you know, you put roses together, cross pollinate. Anyway, please forgive me. Um, but we spend a lot of time and attention on roses. We spent a lot of time and attention on tulips early on in Holland. There was a big tulip bubble. Um, right now, we're spending a lot of time, and by we, I mean gardeners and scientists, on um, marijuana because it beguiles us not with beautiful flowers but with um, its own properties. And so the best gardeners in the world are spending time um, interacting with the marijuana plants, like how can we get more of what we want from you? How can we grow you? Do you want to go inside? Do you want to be grown inside? That's fine. We'll take you inside. Um, oh, do you want, you want to be in the sun? Just well, fine. We'll take you outside. Um, do you want natural rain? We'll catch it for you. We'll, 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 we'll water you with whatever you want. So I would say that's like a big winner in the attention uh, game and co-evolution with humans right now. Oak trees, on the other hand, they partnered with squirrels. You know, they don't care. They didn't make the acorn sweet for us. Um, Native Americans learned how to leach the bitterness out of acorns and use it for nutrition. But um, the oak trees, they, they, as long as there are squirrels who bury the acorns and then forget about two-thirds of the acorns they buried, the oak trees are going to be fine. So take a bite of your apple if you like. Um, just this once, it's okay to eat in the sanctuary. And even though it has to compete in our world with sugary uh, candy and snacks, it's still a delightful sweetness. As you eat it, take in some of its wildness. The wildness of its ancestors are still here in the seeds. And there are scientists that are visiting the forests of Kazakhstan in order to gather as much wild DNA as they can. Take in some of its adaptability. Take in the idea of how much different DNA there is in the seeds of this apple. They don't let you eat the seeds. The seeds are not delicious. They want you to spit the seeds out so you can grow more apple trees. If the seeds were delicious, that would be a dumb plant. <laughs> Apples are not a dumb plant. And you have so much diversity 
See, one of the problems is that once we humans figure out what we like in an apple, big, sweet, easy to ship, bright red, we'll just make so many of those. We call them red delicious. We'll make so many of those that we're in danger some, in some places of having a monoculture of apples. And you all know from, from your studies that a monoculture is very vulnerable. In Ireland, they had one kind of potatoes, and one water mold made a potato blight on the whole crop of potatoes, and Ireland starved. There's a Facebook game. Uh, It says, for your Halloween costume, put the word sexy in front of whatever the last thing you Googled was. And so my Halloween costume was sexy Irish potato blight, (laughs) which I do not think is going to work at all. So variety is strength. Diversity is strength. Seeds are brilliant. If I were to run for public office, I would take my oath of office with my hand on a packet of seeds. They are so powerful. They're so courageous. They trust the future. I think seeds are amazing, and I think if we could learn from them, we should. And as you eat the apple, remember that it's teaching you about your blind spots. That it's possible that instead of being brilliant and domesticating apples, we've been played (laughs) in a very pleasant way. Let us say together the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Sing with me if you care to. Remember the way of the wind and breathe and blow. Remember the way of the fire and sparkle and glitter and glow. Remember the way of the water and ebb and flow. Remember the way of the earth and grow. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.